Is the concept of the Trinity an invention or an explanation? Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. God is one. There's no disagreement about that between Christians and Jews. But it raises some problems when reading the scriptures. Really, it's one problem over and over again. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms often present that one God in ways that challenge our one-dimensional idea of one. Today, Jim will remind us of where we've been in this study, then give us a whirlwind tour of the Old Testament. We are pursuing a series of messages of how the truth in these chapters are intended to teach us how to live, how to live effectively. In the first of those messages, we noticed that there were certain very basic paradigm shifts that would take place, that when Jesus was going to leave the world, the disciples were going to have to assume some responsibilities that they had expected from him. We learned that in John 13. You're to do to one another things that he had done for them. Also, their relationship with the world would shift dramatically. He would no longer be there to be that buffer, to take the insults and the attacks of the enemy. And in his absence, they would experience the hatred of the world and the tribulation and oppression that would come directly from the world Because of their relationship with him, they likewise would no longer be of the world. And the world would recognize that, and the world would treat them just like it had treated Jesus. There's a third paradigm shift we noted in that message, and that was that while Jesus would not be with them in the flesh, he would be with them in the spirit. And that in the spirit business meant that God himself would personally come to reside inside the believer. This is kind of new. This was a new paradigm, a new way that God would deal. It's, It's fundamental to the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. In the old covenant, God revealed himself outwardly in Well, in prophetic messages, in the institution of the tabernacle, temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, in the law with its dictates and its demands, all of those were external. And men found those to be a grievous weight. And they were unable to meet the expectations or, frankly, to enjoy the privileges of intimacy with God under that arrangement. You remember that in that arrangement, God positioned himself in the Holy of Holies in the Shekinah glory. And only one person once a year was privileged to enter into the Holy of Holies and to commune directly with God. Of course, that was the high priest. Now, you know all of that. But Jesus was saying to his disciples in this new covenant, in this new testament, in this new relationship that I'm establishing for you in my blood in my sacrifice, in my death, and resurrection, and ascension of the Father, in that new relationship, that old system will be set aside, and you will have not only fellowship with God, but God himself will dwell within you. Now, that's such an important and basic transformation that we've we've slowed down now, and we're dealing with that a bit. And the last time we met in this arena... We talked a great deal about that, the mystery of God in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
in Galatians, where God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart. And Romans, where the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And he bears witness with our spirit and we confess, Abba, Father, Abba, Abba. We noted in Ephesians and in other passages that this, this, this relationship where God would come into our lives and transform us from the inside out was basic to all of the teaching of the New Testament about the Christian life and how it functions. It seemed to me that the next thing we ought to address in our progression through this series of messages on how then shall we live, how does God want us to live, Next thing we need to deal with was the very nature of God, because there in John 14, Jesus said to them in verse 16, I, speaking himself, will pray the Father, and he, the Father, will send you another comforter, another comforter, even the Spirit of truth. Now you know him because he has been dwelling with you, but he will in the future dwell in you. And that doctrine of the nature of God, the plurality of the singular God, whether you call it Trinitarianism or whatever term you give to it, has been a backbreaker for theologians, for philosophers, for Christian thinkers. It has caused divisions in churches and the formation of whole new fellowships and denominations. Yesterday morning, um, in the message, I, I labored at trying to point out that that's not something we assume. In other words, the duality or the plurality of God's nature is not something that we dream up or impose upon Scripture. But rather, it's something that's stated by Scripture for which we have no better title. So while the word Trinity doesn't occur any place in your Bible, you use it with freedom because it's a... It's a time-tested formula or a time-tested word, a symbol that we would use to express this mystery, the mystery that God is one. There is one God. He is one. But in that one God, there is a plurality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I tried yesterday to very quickly draw the conclusions that this is a very practical thing because, in the first place, it gives us an orientation as to what God meant in Genesis 1 when he quotes himself through the pen of Moses with these words. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What does that mean? Well, it means that God, before creation, was very content within himself. <laughs> and that uh, the one who shaped us in his image and after his likeness didn't need us. Some have wanted to impress upon us that, that God, God was lonely and so he created a man. Or God was in some sense restless or unfulfilled and so he created man. Not so, dear friends. God... God as God had all God needed within himself for fellowship, communion, for relationship, and was perfectly content. There was no need in God. And that's a healthy thing to know. It keeps us on the one hand of thinking too highly of ourselves as if God needs us. 
On the other hand, it keeps us from thinking too lowly of ourselves as if we are just dirt. Neither extreme is true. We are the objects of God's creation and we bear his image and his image is plural. I also said yesterday that uh, this is good news for us when it comes to the matter of God's redemption. That God does not expect us to participate in procuring or in protecting or in providing or in keeping our salvation. That to me is wonderfully releasing, just incredible. That salvation at Calvary was a God on God thing. I was impressed with the number of people after the service that came up to talk about that. <laughs> no. Well, how about Satan? Satan didn't have a thing to do with it. He, and God wasn't satisfying Satan. Calvary wasn't God giving Satan uh, a, uh, a justification or a piece of flesh. Not at all. Satan didn't figure in that equation at all. The God who had been violated by our sin and whose holiness demanded uh, reprise or payment made that payment in himself. And Calvary was not where Satan executed Jesus and then said, whoops, made a mistake. Calvary is where God the Father spared not his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all. Grasp that. Hold on to that. Don't lose that. And that's why we know that our salvation is complete and paid for and settled, and therefore we can enter into it as a, as a gift of grace and love and not an unfinished contract that we have to work out and, and fulfill. But because salvation was a God-on-God God thing, then God can give us a paid-in-full redemption, and it's paid in full even before you receive it. I went on then, I think, to make the point that God isn't just satisfied with that, but when we receive this gift of salvation, God proceeds then to complete the work of salvation in us, taking no chances. He doesn't put anything at risk. He doesn't, he doesn't allow any slippage. There's no, there's no place for God's program to somehow go foul or his, his intent to be ruptured or fractured or missed. He does that by personally taking up his residence in every individual believer, personally taking up his residence. And that's why you read, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and he is the seal of God. We are sealed unto redemption by the Holy Spirit. That means that he is the, he is the marker just as the signature on, on, a, um, on a loan guarantees its payment, just as the, the picture and the official documentation on a $10 bill uh, gives notice and signifies its, its official authority, its worth, its value. It's not just another piece of paper. So the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives individually marks us as belonging to God and guarantees to us that what God has begun, he will complete. Sanctification as justification. It's not something that God just leaves to chance. It's something that God secures 
by positioning himself within the believer. And therefore, the experience of salvation is the outworking of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why Paul could write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and talk to them about how the Holy Spirit had, had engraved the law of God or written the law of God in the fleshly tablets of their hearts. So in the New Covenant, the law no longer stands outside, chiseled in stone, celebrated in the, in the, in the priestly worship at the temple, but rather that law of God is impressed upon our hearts, taught to us by the Spirit of God, who then empowers us to do the will of God. Do you see that? And see, we can rest assured that that is true when we know that God is Trinity. We can pray the Father, and that's correct. We're told to do that, pray to the Father. And when we're praying to the Father, we're not praying to the Holy Spirit. We're not addressing our prayers inward to the Holy Spirit, but rather upward and outward to God who sits on the throne. And when we, when we know that Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews, is in the presence of God making intercession for us, that does not trouble us. It does not trouble us to know that there is God on the throne and God the Son interceding and God the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. That's not, that's not a perversion. That's not heresy. That's not, that's not idolatrous. That's basic biblical truth. Now, it's my impression, and therefore tonight I would like to spend one more session with you talking some more about the plurality of God in the whole of scriptures. Because you see, if God is not plural, then we will have a great deal of difficulty with the deity of Jesus Christ. And we'll have a great deal of difficulty understanding who he is. We will fall into heresies like many of our neighbors are thinking that he is the highest of a created order of angels. That's heresy. And we will fall into the error of thinking that the Holy Spirit is just an influence. That when God sent forth the Spirit, that that's just kind of a, a, an influence that God sends, like the wind is an influence in nature, and that the Holy Spirit has no distinct personality in himself, individuality, but rather he is, he is just a form that God takes when God works his salvation in the lives of believers. And we want to avoid those kinds of uh, heretical thoughts. So tonight, for the few moments we have, I want to talk with you a bit about how this duality or this plurality of God appears in the scriptures. Now, we've already cited one example, and that's in Genesis chapter 1. And there is no question that there God identifies himself with the, with the plural uh, pronoun us. Let us, our. No question about that. And that's not an accident of literature. It follows through. If you'll turn in your Bibles back to Genesis and look with me at chapter 3 for just a moment. Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and God came to visit with them and was, um, found it necessity to confront and expose their sin so that he could uh, deal with it. Um, Look at verse 22. Now, this is in Genesis 3, 22. 
So this is after the creation, after the fall. God says, in verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of, what's that say? Us. One of us. So God, in the opening revelation, the book of Genesis, presents himself as one God, but I'm going to say multiple rather than dual, multiple personalities. And he is seen as very comfortable with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One mind, one plan, one will, but very decidedly, um, a relationship exists between three persons, or well, at least more than one person, in the book of Genesis. And you remember, in Isaiah chapter 6, again, a passage that I'm sure you would cite, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had this marvelous vision of the great high God. You remember what he heard. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he describes this magnificent, awe-inspiring uh, vision of God. We read in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord God saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, some have wanted to make the problem go away by saying that the us there refers to the seraphim, those fiery creatures with multiple eyes and wings that were there in the presence of the throne. But you'll notice uh, that would uh, throw the language out of sync. God himself here is speaking of sending someone on his behalf. He is speaking of authorizing and sending one to do, uh, to do, to have a message, a prophetic message for his people. That's Isaiah chapter 6, and that's in verse 8. So again, God appears in plurality, plurality in the Old Testament. Let me see if I can find one or two more. Perhaps you have examples of these things that you would like to cite tonight. Anyone? Feel free to chime in. We're here to learn together. Okay, look back with me then at, uh, in, back in Genesis again, if you will. Genesis chapter 19, I believe it is. And uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice verse 24, Genesis 19:24. I'm not sure this makes the point well, but then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, the reason that would suggest duality or plurality in God is because you remember earlier in the chapter, just the day before, three angels came to visit Abraham, you remember, uh, to announce to Abraham that uh, he and Sarah were going to have a very special son and also uh, to inform Abraham about the destruction, the impending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as Abraham presses the question, he discovers that one of the three angels is none other than God himself. So you would have pictured here that God, while still on earth, as one of the, quote, angelic beings, end of quote, and God also in heaven, and the text seems to indicate that the Lord reigned, and the Lord reigned from out of heaven, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Notice with me, please, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees the, the conclusion of God's prophetic program on earth and the establishment of uh, God's reign on the earth. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, so forth and so on and so on. You have two heavenly persons involved in that vision. You have one sitting on the throne, and you have one whom Daniel calls like the Son of Man, and the one who is the Son of Man is the one who was given dominion, glory, kingdom, that all nations, etc. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So here in Daniel chapter 7, in the prophetic visions of the end time, again, you see God acting with God. You see a separation of God. And we're going to go to Revelation 4 and 5 next. But first, do you have any examples in the Old Testament that you'd like to cite of those, those places where the Old Testament suggests, at least, suggests very strongly that God is one God, but that he is dual. He is, he is multiple personalities. Any other places that come to mind? Yes. Zechariah 12.10 sounds good to me. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn and weep for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Uh, that prophecy of the repentance of the nation of Israel, you're speaking of when they recognized that the one whom they pierced, Jesus Christ, was indeed the Messiah. Is that what you're referring to, John? Right, yes, that God and me are the same ones, exactly. There are not multiple gods. We can't divide God into pieces. We shouldn't think of him as wearing different masks. When we eliminate all the ways that don't work to reconcile the scriptures, we're left with something like the Trinity model. Jim's sermon is called The Three-in-One, Part Two, and we'll continue with it on Tuesday and Wednesday. For a gift of $7 or more, you can get the complete message on CD. And the 11 CDs in the collection How to Live Effectively, Volume 1, can be yours for an offering of $38 or more. Stand by for ordering details. Please consider becoming one of our partners in broadcasting this helpful Bible teaching by praying or sending a financial gift. Believers like you have come through for us day after day for more than 14,000 days. If you'd like to take part in a miracle, I think that's one way you could do it. Thanks for considering that. Please mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437, Worthington, Ohio, 43085, USA. Or you can call us at 1-800-984-2313. That's 
1-800-273-2313. And go to our website, rightstartradio.org. You can donate securely there. And we've loaded a lot of instructive material onto the site so you can listen whenever you like. You can re-listen to today's broadcast or go back into the library to hear past shows. You can email us. There's a link to the iTunes podcast and a lot more for you at rightstartradio.org. Rightstartradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. Tomorrow, more verses from the Word of God that seem to indicate a plurality in the divine unity. Please join us for Tuesday's Right Start. Thank you.